our new bestie has changed how we track our investments. Why have over 400,000 investors chosen ShareSite? It's simple. This online investment dashboard for your investment portfolio supports over 500,000 stocks, ETFs, and funds, plus integrated with more than 200 platforms, ensures your entire investment portfolio is organized and accessible in one place. Move beyond the limited insights from brokerage statements. ShareSite offers a comprehensive view of your financial performance, including analyzed reports, dividend gains, and the impact of currency fluctuations, all through intuitive graphs and visualizations. But here's the best part. For the investee besties out there, ShareSite is offering a special deal. Save four months when you purchase an annual premium plan. It's time to dive deep into performance metrics, streamline tax reporting, and share your portfolio with ease. Join the link in the episode description to sign up to ShareSite now and transform your investment experience. Hello and welcome to Girls That Invest. Today's Thursday, which means we're bringing you Girls That Business, a weekly series where we spill the tea on how to create a seven-figure side hustle because no one saves their way to wealth. You're joined today by Sim, a seven-figure business owner, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Shelly Johnson. Shell is an outstanding HR rebel and the founder of Boldside Consulting. Her mission is simple. She's trying to build leaders that want to follow and teams that will never want to leave. Shell has led a large human resource team for over a decade and helps people become the leaders they want to follow, building cultures, have the people talking and applying. You might already know Shell because she is one of the amazing hosts behind the My Millennial Career podcast, an Australian podcast awards finalist where she's helped thousands of people build a career that they love. Shell has also recently released her first book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. We'll be diving into some of the amazing lessons that she has shared, and we cannot wait for you to listen to this episode. It is one for the ages. All right. Well, hello, Shell. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Sim, for having me. I am very excited to have this chat and I don't like the term pick your brain because I find that really cringy and like <laughs> it brings up a fight or flight response in me but I guess I'm picking your brain today on all <laughs> things HR business related running teams people because that's like the real amazing work that you do I have to ask though how did you get into this yeah so how did I get into HR how did I get into running my own business both let's start with HR and then how did you transition away from the nine to five and get into your own thing okay cool so I got into HR probably about 10 years ago, kind of fell into it, started in like a rostering and administrative role. And then over time just developed as a HR officer, kind of went and worked my way up in a large business and then ended up in HR management and did my master's and did lots of study to go along with it. But it's funny because if I think about HR, like you said, pick your brain is a cringy term. HR is a cringy term, right? (laughs) Like when people think about HR, they're like, it's the principal's office. I don't want to ever see them. I don't want to go to them. And so for me, a big thing in my career has been, how do I do HR, but not be boring? 
or not be the police. You were like, how do I be like, I'm not like the regular HR people. I'm like a cool HR person. <laughs> yeah, I'm a cool mum. I'm a cool HR. Like, and that has been a really big part of my career story and journey. And over time, so I worked in internal HR, leading HR teams in a number of organisations and then decided, you know what, like I'm a creative at heart and I want to do a business and I don't want to work in an organisation anymore. So I, this is a really compressed version, like there was a lot of struggles and, and issues that I had to deal with along the way to get to the point of starting my own business. But I think the big thing, Sim, was looking at, okay, what do I have to offer? What's my point of difference? And then how do I create a business around what is uniquely me, what are my unique strengths and find an edge to what I'm doing? And so with HR, that was being a gutsy, brave, bold HR consultant. But I think for anyone listening who's got this kind of I guess I would call it like a little thing in them that's like a gut vibe that, oh, one day I would love to start my own business or one day I would love to lead a team. If you've got that feeling right now and you're listening, I want you to find ways to start stepping towards that because for me that was a really big thing. Like for years and years I had this desire to do my own business but I always said to myself, I don't know if I can do it, I don't know if I have what it takes But eventually I just went, you know what, stuff it. I've been thinking about it for ages. I just need to go all in. And it's been the best career move I've ever made. And so anyone listening who's in that spot, you need to listen to that inkling or that intuition. Oh, I love that. I think that's really important for you to share because if someone meets you now, it comes across like you always knew. It comes across like you were like you came out of the womb and you were like, I'm going to do like this full time. I am made for this. It's so clear the vision you have and the work that you do that's in alignment so it's really interesting to know that at one point in time you were unsure and you were scared that's honestly mind-blowing for those that are listening you touched on like finding the thing that you are good at or finding the thing that you know is your point of difference do you mind sharing how you came to that conclusion of what you were good at yeah we really need to get clear in our career about what makes us stand out. So often we think about, well, how do I get better? But I want to challenge that idea of it's not about getting better as much as it's about being different. Like figure out your point of difference, figure out what makes you uniquely you and how do you amplify that? So if you think about a personal brand, I want you to find out how do you make your personal brand stand out? So for me, one of the big things was if we think about, let's think about HR because it's an easy example. HR is notoriously boring, compliance-driven, and all about the policies. For me, my point of difference was we're HR without the rule book. We do bold, gutsy HR initiatives, leadership workshops, and all that stuff, and we make it fun. And so I want you to find that if you're an accountant, it might be that accountants are kind of sometimes known similarly to what HR is, where they might be seen as rule followers, or they might be seen as really into the numbers and to Excel spreadsheets. So what if you knew how to write in a really compelling way that was different? It made you stand out from every other accountant out there. So the thing that I want you to look for, and we, we talk about this in our book, Sort Your Career Out, it's this idea of how do you find 
your unique strengths? How do you uncover those strengths? Because we're really good sim at figuring out all the things we're not good at and we focus a lot on that. I want you to dig into and uncover what is my zone of genius and from there we can start to map out, well, then if I want to do a business or a side hustle or I want to or I want to lead a team, I can start to craft this personal brand that makes me really employable or it makes me stand out in a marketplace. And that's, for me, something that's been really important and something I've seen and helped a lot of people in their career do to really attract like-minded businesses, attract like-minded clients. So I think it's really important that we clarify what makes us stand out. Oh, that's quite helpful because I I see it now. Like you've got quite like a very bubbly and like warm personality. And then to take that into like HR and be like, oh, well, I'm not going to conform who I am to like fit this role. Instead, I'm going to change the role and make it like more myself. That's my point of difference. That's actually quite, quite smart. I have to ask, a lot of people are listening in and they're going, okay, like I'm finding my zone of genius. Like I'm taking on what Shell's saying, but... I'm at the point where I want to quit, but how do you make that leap? Because I think the misconception is that people will wake up one day and just be like, I'm ready and they'll quit and they'll start the business the next day. But I assume that's probably not how it happened. So what was your journey like leaving your nine to five? What was the final push that took you out and how did you finally make that jump? Oh, okay. There's a lot to this question. So I had as a side hustle, done a couple of consulting jobs with clients or they were really friends and they came to me and said, hey, can you help us? We've got some HR problems. I was like, yes, yeah, sweet, I'll help you. And I just kind of made up <laughs> a business name and quoted and like did some stuff and, and I dipped my toe in the water and it wasn't heaps of work, but it was enough to get me a couple of testimonials. And so I was testing out, could I do this? And I probably did that two years before actually making the jump to start my proper business And that was a way of, it kind of helped me to overcome the imposter syndrome because I was going, oh yeah, this isn't that hard. Like I think I'm making it harder in my mind than it actually is in real life. Like most people are winging it. Like my, my, I mean, you know this too, right? Right. When you start your business, you're like, do I have what it takes? Am I going to be good enough? But then you like realize everyone thinks that. Like everyone is thinking, holy crap, this is so hectic. But if you just dip your toe in the water first and test it. It's kind of like a preview. You know, when you go to the movies and you watch the trailers, I want you to get a preview of what it would be like to start your own business. So test it with a few people. You can even do work for them and say, look, in exchange for a testimonial, can I do this mini project for you? And you start building up that portfolio. But I did that, yeah, about two years before I started my business And then I went into, I quit my nine to five and I went into a small business that was a HR consulting company, but it was a bit of a step back from what I'd been doing. So I'd been in a bigger organization and I kind of took this step back. It was after I'd had my second bub Bowie and within probably four to five months, I just realized, oh, this role isn't giving me the growth that I need. And it was, I felt to be really honest, like I kind of felt quite restricted and I felt like I didn't have my creative kind of control. I I felt stifled in that environment. And so what I ended up doing, and I got to the point at five months where I just felt like there wasn't that alignment with who I am and what I value. So I 
remember I was on the streets of Sydney in George Street and I just thought, okay, I'm going to quit. And I quit my job, didn't have another job to go to. Like, and this is, I know, a privileged spot to be in. So I want to acknowledge that. Like my husband and I kind of talked it through and went, okay, it's going to be a stretch financially, but I just knew I couldn't stay where I was. So I quit and I was in Sydney on George Street, finished up a HR gig called Glenn James, who's the founder of My Millennial Money, the podcast group that I'm part of. And I said to him, I just quit my job. And he's like, okay, cool. Like, what are you going to do now? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I have no idea. And he's like, okay, so like, what are you thinking? I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just freelance. And I had this thing of, I think I'm going to do this business. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, oh, you know what I reckon we should do? We should write a book. <laughs> Stop. Dead set. He's like, we should write a careers book. We'll call it Sort Your Career Out. It'll be a follow-up to Sort Your Money Out. And I was like, no, I can't do that. Like, I'm unemployed. <laughs> like, I'm legit unemployed. Like, how can I possibly write a careers book? And he's like, no, no, it'd be sweet. It's the perfect time to write it. Like, you'll be sorting your career out while we write this book. So he texts the publisher and they're like, Within like a few minutes, yep, let's do it. Within a few minutes. Like they got back to him. It was so quick. And like obviously the contracts and stuff take time, but it was like this moment in time. And you know what I I realized in that point? There's these moments that come along in your career and they're really pivotal and we have to pay attention. And it's the moment that equally terrifies and excites you. Like, you know, that moment scene where you're like, holy shit. Like if I do this, if I back myself, I'm scared about what's going to happen, but I'm also excited about all the options and possibilities. So for me in that moment, I was terrified. I'm like, I'm unemployed. I run a careers podcast and I'm having a total career crisis. And I think I want to do my own business, but I don't know if I have what it takes. And I just went, stuff it. I'm going to do it. And so we did, (laughs) we did the book. I took about four ish maybe five months, really off work, took that time to work out, well, what do I want my business to be? And that's where I came up with this idea of Bold Side, which is my HR business, because it was all about this thing of, you know what, we have to overcome that fear. Like we have to push through that fear. And if we want to build something awesome, you have to take a risk. So if you're right now listening, going, this is me, this is that critical moment. I want to encourage you, do something that terrifies and excites you. That's the measure and the metric we should be using to assess some of those career decisions. Oh, I can definitely think of a few things that are terrifying me right now that like, you know, you should do, but you're just like, but I'm comfortable. I don't want to like get out of my like, you know, comfort zone, but that's the time you, you do it. I have to say, Glenn James is such an amazing human for doing that and just being like, you've quit your job, write a book with me. He also was the person that, I guess he didn't make you quit, but he was like, Simran, you need to quit your job. Like, would follow up, have you quit your job yet? <laughs> like, so very pivotal in both of our... Sim, can I ask you, because you, you had a moment like that of, you'd had people ask you to run their social media and stuff. You were kind of doing the, dipping your toe in the water while you're being an optometrist at the same time. What was the catalyst point for you, the tipping point where you're like, okay, now I'm going all in on this business. I think the misconception people have is there's some pull that 
is what takes you to the next step to quit your job and start your your business. It's it wasn't the pull. I mean, the pull is always there. The pull is always there to have control of your time. That fire that you talk about, like the little gut feeling of I want to do my own thing was always there as well, but that was never enough to push me over the edge and I was doing what you were doing, dipping my toes in. It was in the same way that for you it was actually a push of the last job that you were in where you realized you weren't able to be as creative. My push was not having control over my own time. And I don't share this often, but it really was like a a moment where I realized I wanted to do something, couldn't do that because I didn't have control of my time with the job that I was in. And that's all it took. I was like, you know what? I just feel like this is the moment I need to make a change. And that and also looking at my LinkedIn, like I was looking at my LinkedIn one evening and it was like girls that invest and the Indian feminist and advisory to this board and this and that and social media consultancy and optometrist. And I was like, one of these does not look like the other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like spot the difference. (laughs) I was like, I really need to flick one of these off. Now I want to move into, let's say, someone's listening into this, they've taken that step, they've actually started their own business. But one of the biggest fears people have, or I guess the two things that hold them back is money, which we've spoken about in other episodes. The second thing is people. People seem to be a huge stressor of businesses or a huge concern people have. In my case, I was not aware. I didn't even realize that you know, this would be something I'd even need to like upskill in or learn about. I was like, I'm good with people. I have friends like this should be fine. And that was obviously a huge step for me. But do you mind talking a little bit about that? <laughs> totally. So the first question I want to ask your listeners is, and if you're walking or you're driving in your car as you're listening to this, you can raise your hand. We won't judge you. But if you've worked for a bad manager, just raise your hand. Just say, yes, that's me. Just nod along. Because most people have worked for a bad manager, right? And the thing is, leadership is often thought about as a career ladder step where, okay, you're a specialist and now all of a sudden you develop and you've gone from a marketing specialist to a marketing manager. But leadership is not about a career rung on the ladder. Leadership is a skill, just like you become a chartered accountant. We should have a program that people have to go through before they can lead because it's so difficult. But unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. We get kind of thrust into these leadership gigs or we start a business and all of a sudden it grows and we have to hire a bunch of people and we realize, holy crap, I've gone from doing the thing that I love to leading a team who do the thing that I love. Very different skill sets. So we need to look at leadership as a skill and a science that we need to develop. And often, Sim, the thing that bothers me when people talk about leadership is they really emphasize the art part of it. So if we think about it as art and science, they're like, oh, well, that person's a natural born leader. And I just don't buy into that crap. I just think, okay, yeah, sure. People have natural traits towards things. Like some people are more athletic than others, or some people are better with building relationships and some people are better at numbers, whatever that is. But leadership like anything is a skill and it's a skill that you can learn and in fact if we had more people who were willing to learn we'd have heaps more better leaders 
For business owners, every transaction is more than just a swipe of the card. It's the culmination of your hard work, dedication, and commitment to your customers. That's why I'm excited to share with you a game-changing solution that's simplifying the way businesses like yours accept payments. Introducing Tap to Pay on iPhone, powered by Stripe. Contactless payments has never been easier. You can seamlessly accept contactless payments directly from your iPhone, and the best part, there's no additional hardware required. Think about it. From local pop-ups to global retailers, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe cater to businesses of all sizes, empowering them to accept payments right from their iPhones. It's a game changer for businesses looking to scale quickly and stay flexible with quick setup that takes minutes, not days. So how can Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe benefit your business? It's simple. Increased revenue, expanded reach, and enhanced customer experience. It's a win-win-win. To learn more about how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can transform your business, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone today. Oh, I love that. Well, so, sort of going into that, what do you think makes a good leader? Like if it's something that we can learn, what are the traits that we can over time pick up? Yeah. So one of the things that I train my clients and my leaders that I work with in is there's five things that make an effective leader. And so if we think about these things, we have clarity, courage, coach, culture builder, and consistency. I love that they're all C's. Was that done on purpose? Yeah, totally. Just to, <laughs> you know, you just have to have that's that's any, any consultant if they get a, a five letters to match, then they're like, yeah, I've done my it job. Must <laughs> it must work. It must work. I was gonna say they're all C words. <laughs> One missing, obviously. So <laughs> I hope we're allowed to say that on here. <laughs> so if we think about those areas, a lot of the time people are. To err towards one or the other. So they might be good at having tough conversations. So they're courageous and they're very clear with setting goals, but they're not as strong at building culture. So they don't know how to build this team dynamic that people actually want to be part of. And they don't know how to coach. So often if you are an entrepreneur and you start your own business, you might be really good at your technical skill, but then all of a sudden you've got to help other people grow. And to do that, we have to become an expert coach, but coaching is time consuming. And it's like, oh, I'd rather just do the damn thing than tell you or coach you to do it because it takes too much time. But in order to grow our business, we have to become good at coaching. The last area that I really see is one of the biggest challenges for leaders is consistency. So if you have and, and this is where I talk about, if we think about the bad managers, often the thing that bad managers do is they lack consistency. So they might show up and they're moody one day, but then they've got high energy the next, or they snap at certain people on the team, but they're kind to others. And so if there's inconsistency in your behavior as a leader, that's going to cause a breakdown in trust on your team. And that's where we start to have big cultural problems. And if we don't have that safety and trust, it's very difficult for us to attract great people in and to keep the great people that we have. Mm. Oh, that's quite helpful. Would you say that to be a good leader is something like if someone asks you, how long does it take? How many years does it take to be a good leader? Do you have a number? Because is this something you can do in a year or is this like, you know, a lifelong learning thing? 
<laughs> you say that like you're like, oh, lifelong learning. <laughs> you're like, can't we just be good at it now? <laughs> Where's the button that I can press and be a good leader? <laughs> yeah, because it's like, okay, so one of the big things that I see about leadership is you often have to learn through failure. You often have to learn by testing it out. And you you would have had these experiences, Sim. Any business owner will know them where they look back on something that they did as a leader and they think, gee, I, did, I really handled that poorly. <laughs> I had that today. No, I didn't do it today. I had that thought today where I was like, I just reflected on an incident where, yeah, communication broke down and it was such a tense situation. And I was like, I really could have just kept my mouth quiet and just, you know, talked about it later. But you're right. This Is that growth? That's great. Well, if we look at it in that way, I think the, the key thing in what you just described though, Sim, is that you reflected on it. And so if you have that posture of reflecting, and you can self-reflect often enough, you have such a head start at being a good leader. But often I think people don't do that practice of self-reflection. If we don't have that muscle of, okay, when there's a critical problem in my business, so let's say there's a breakdown in communication, or let's say a really good person quits. When that happens, that's a moment, one of those moments where we need to pause and think, okay, they're leaving because they're saying that they've got a good opportunity somewhere else. But I want to dig into what is it that they felt they weren't getting here and how can I improve the dynamic so that I don't lose more good people? That's a painful process, right? Because we have to let go of our ego. We have to be humble enough to acknowledge that, okay, there's probably something I need to take away from this. And Turnover of staff is one of those indicators and it's that classic quote that people leave managers, not jobs. But then I don't know that as managers we reflect enough on that. Every time someone leaves, we should do that deep work to go, okay, what could I do differently because I want to keep great people? Now, there's another side to that where sometimes we need the wrong people to leave and that's another tough thing that managers have to do. But I want you to be self-reflective and practice this and get a coach, get a leadership coach or a mentor to help you do it and to help you get up close and personal with those pain points. So it could be the pain points within your team. It could be the pain points within your own leadership style. Oh, I love that. When you are thinking of like businesses that are just starting and they've just hired their like first couple of staff, what do you see as the main issues that tend to come up? Yeah. Okay. This one's, <laughs> yes, this is a really good question. Shella's first... like, I have a whole list. Let me just bring out my like big <laughs> folder, like dust it off. Well, don't need to dust it off. It's ready to go at any moment. <laughs> it's like, this is massive. The biggest challenge I see leaders and the big thing they f- often fail to do, Sam, is they don't set the expectations up front. So one of the things that I do with any new employee is I sit down with them in their, on their first day, their first meeting with me, and I run through, hey, here's what you can expect of me. You're going to get really great support. I'm going to help you grow and develop. Anytime there is an issue, you are going to hear about it from me. I'm going to give you honest feedback. So what I'm doing there by setting the expectations is I'm actually creating accountability both ways. I'm holding myself accountable as the leader to say, hey, If there's any issues, I'll give you direct feedback. You can expect that of me. And then on the flip side, I say, here's what 
I expect from you. I expect you to be honest with me if there's a problem. I expect you to take initiative and you clarify all these expectations. And by doing that, we can actually set the tone from the beginning. But one of the things, if we miss that step in the process, often we find that we let these little habits take place and it becomes difficult to reset the behaviors. So one of the common challenges I hear leaders say is, well, that that employee, they just don't take initiative. They just wait to be told what to do. But if you set that expectation up front that, hey, I want you to own your role, I want, to, I want you to take ownership and initiative, then if you see the behaviour crop up later, it's easier to address it because you've already called it out from the outset. Oh, that's quite good. And for those that have started this and are listening in and going, oh, I actually did not do that, is it too late to have those conversations with your team? No, no, it isn't too late. How I frame this is call it a culture reset. We say to the team, hey, we're going to do a bit of a culture reset. I want us as a group to define what are the non-negotiable behaviours in this team. So you kind of get the team to set it together. And by doing that, they're going to be more bought in, they're going to be more committed. And if you do that as a group, then you all set the expectations. So one of the expectations might be that we exceed our customers' expectations. I realise that's weird. I've got expectations multiple times in there. If you call that out as a non-negotiable for your team and everyone agrees to it, then when it doesn't happen, we have this thing that we go back to as an anchor point and say, hey, we all agreed we were going to do this. Like we all agreed that we'd commit to this. Let's talk that through. Why didn't that happen this time? How can we improve for next time? So it just sets the ground rules for your team and it becomes this culture that any new person coming in, they can also see and kind of live up to. Okay. Would you say that it is quite common to run into founders or people that have just started their business when they have their first couple of hires? That Do you think it's quite common where you see them just naturally do a few things that they think are the right ways to lead, but to you, with your experience, it's just like red flag? <laughs> yeah. yeah I've, there's heaps of red flags, right? And we, we all have these. One of the things that makes someone a great founder often doesn't make them a great leader. So the thing that they do, like let's say they are the person who loves to innovate, they love to be doing all the client-facing stuff, they love to be out there, but then it comes to leading a team and they're like, oh, now I have to focus on the operations or the processes or making the team more efficient and that stuff doesn't energize them. And so What I tend to see is we focus on the things that energize us, but often that comes at the expense of the team. So a lot of founders I've kind of connected with tend to have some perfectionistic tendencies. Oh, where did that come from? (laughs) I wonder (laughs) who. (laughs) You're like, I'm putting my hand up. (laughs) And as perfectionists, we like things done in a certain way. What that means though for our staff is that they can feel like we're in that command and control mode rather than coaching and guiding them. And when we slip into command and control, we actually lower the engagement on our team because we're not using the team's strengths, we're not developing them, we're not growing them. And that is a red flag because employees, especially millennials and Gen Zs, they want opportunities for growth. They want to have creative. And like you think about what you said like seen before where you're like, I wanted to have this creative outlet. I wanted to have more autonomy. 
So you started your own business. Well, most people our age want that. So as a leader, if we're in command and control style, we're actually stifling our employees and it means that it becomes more difficult to retain them in the long term. So we have to allow them space to learn, to grow, to fail. And we have to relinquish control sometimes, but that can be painful and really hard to do. I have another question, kind of going off what you've said, especially to do with millennials and Gen Z. We find that we really struggle when we're business owners to, you know, on one hand, we want to be the cool boss, the millennial Gen Z boss, the one that's like, you know, come in whenever, as long as you get your work done, you know, task focus, not xyz or like if you're working remotely you can be in your pjs and then also balancing like professionalism and getting work done and not letting things slip or not creating a culture that's i guess sloppy yeah that's massive the ability to give feedback constructive feedback in kindness is a really tough skill to develop and there's this amazing quote from henry cloud and he's a management and leadership author and he talks about as leaders we need to get up close and personal with the pain on our teams sometimes what I think we do though is we retreat from those painful conversations because they're uncomfortable or we don't know how to do them and so we think you know what this is really annoying me that this person is a bit sloppy or they show up to meetings unprepared but it's going to be painful to talk to them about it so I'll just overcompensate for them And if we get into a pattern of doing that, all of a sudden we're paying all these people to do this thing. They're not doing it. They're not delivering it. And we're not achieving our goals as a business. So one of the things I want you to do is to reframe feedback. So often we see feedback as this, oh, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. But I want you to start to look at feedback and go, feedback is a service. Me giving feedback that's constructive to my employees actually helps them grow in their career. If they don't get feedback, they're not going to get that next opportunity. If they don't get feedback about how they can grow, they're not going to achieve the next promotion that they're after. So I need to think about feedback as a service and those difficult conversations, if we start to look at it with that mindset, it really helps us to go into them, to to actually lean into those discussions. The next thing I want you to do is to prepare. This is, I think so many people are like, I'm so awkward, I'm just going to wing it. (laughs) And they just like wing the conversation where they do what I would call a feedback bomb, (laughs) where they walk into a meeting and they're like, oh, hey, Sim, I just got to give you this feedback and they just launch in and they're like, this happened the other day and it was bad and this and this and this and this. And they just kind of in the nervousness or the awkward energy, get all the info out there. And then they feel this relief because they've finally done the conversation, but the employee on the other side's like, holy shit, like that was hectic. Like, and then they feel like really deflated and demotivated. So what I want you to do is prepare for the conversation. And I've got, you can message me on Instagram or at bold side, we'll have it in the show notes, but I'll give you my tough conversations guide for leaders because this is a really difficult space, but I've got this framework that helps you step through. How do you have those difficult conversations in kindness? Like how do you do it with empathy, with kindness, but you're still being clear about the problems that need to change? And I think when we can do that, we actually get the result 
and our employees respect us more for it. Employees actually want this type of feedback. It's all about how we deliver it. Oh, okay. I see. And, and so is there like a, like three no-nos when it comes to giving feedback when you're trying to be the cool boss? <laughs> yes. So the feedback bomb is one. So don't just drop the bomb. The thing that I do for anyone giving p- feedback would be, hey, Sim, I need to talk to you about this meeting we did with a client last week. When is a good time to chat? And then that gives you control over when that conversation happens. And by giving you control, I actually lower your defenses. So you're less defensive, which means it's going to make a better outcome. The second one is the shit sandwich. Do not do the shit sandwich. Like I hate this form of feedback. I was going to say, I'm really hoping, like fingers crossed, that it's not the burger method of feedback. (laughs) It is honestly the most, like my mom was always really into it. And I'm like, I hated it because I could tell exactly what she's doing. It's coming. Yeah. I'm like, here we go. So it's like, you know what? You look lovely today. (laughs) You really need to improve in your attention to detail. (laughs) And thanks for listening. (laughs) Like, it's just the worst. It's so patronizing and condescending. Yes, it is. We've experienced it so much. Like when Sonia and I have had meetings with other, like external stakeholders and they start it with, Hey, look, we love the mission. We're we're both just like, here we go. Here we go. (laughs) And like all the energy gets sucked out of the room. As soon as someone says they love our mission, it's like, just tell me what you really want to say. (laughs) And that's right. And I think it, it, it feels disingenuous. So the shit sandwich is not good. Do not use that as a method. The third one, if we think about red flags when we have feedback. The third the third one is what I call the sweet and low. So I don't know if they have this in, in New Zealand, but in Australia you can buy this artificial sweetener and it's called sweet and low. And it, like if you think about artificial sweetener, and I'm sorry to anyone who, who like drinks Coke Zero or whatever, but artificial sweetener leaves a gross taste in your mouth. <laughs> it's like that fake sweet flavor, like stevia (laughs) sorry to all these uh if anyone's listening from any of these companies i do apologize what i think happens sometimes we sugarcoat the feedback because we feel like we don't want to upset someone so we we add some artificial sweetener and that would be like hey this is not a big deal but i just need to kind of raise this but it's not a huge thing like it's okay it's okay and when we do that the feedback becomes really unclear. So for that person listening on the end, either they walk away and they don't make the change because they're like, oh, it's not a big deal. (laughs) Or they walk away and they're like, gee, what did they really mean? Like what were they actually trying to say? And they, they feel rattled. So that sweet and low approach to feedback is really unhelpful. So what I want you to do is to give feedback with clarity. So choose clarity over comfort. And Brene Brown says clear is kind. So we want to be really clear when we're giving feedback. Get to the point. Be direct. Don't use like the jargon. Like I would like to assert that you had a problem with the communication across the project. Like what the heck does that even mean? Like just be clear. So those would be my big feedback flags and how to, I guess the main thing is choose clarity over comfort. 
I have to say at one point in my life, I have done all three of those things. <laughs> so this is really great. I mean, this is how growth happens. And I think, like you said, you have to make the mistakes to then realize, hey, I'm actually the kind of person that like doesn't know how to give good feedback. Now I can improve on it. Like you find your weak spots because as you've also said earlier, founders don't always make great leaders because we're so good at certain things like I think founders are really good, like big ideas people, which means it's very hard to then put into words if you're trying to teach someone something to put into words and be like, hey, I usually do this and this. It's a gut feeling, but that's not actually like transferable skills that you can pass on. You have to like break it down and have systems, which is so interesting. And now you've given us so many great nuggets, so many great pieces of information, but I don't want to let you go just yet. I've got two last questions. What has been the best advice that you've been given on how to be a leader? And more importantly, what has been the worst advice that you've ever heard on how to be a leader? Oh, okay. The best advice is an easy one. So a friend of mine, Rowan Dredge, who is the CEO at a big leadership company, said to me, you need to figure out what it's like to be on the other side of you. And what he meant with that statement was, When we're leaders, we need to uncover our blind spots. We need to know how do the people that I lead experience me? What am I doing that's not serving this team? So for me, one of the things, Sim, I'll be really honest, was that my team found me to be really abrupt and they gave me that feedback, which was a really good thing. So I learned, well, to be on the other side of me, is that you have to deal with this abrupt, obnoxious person who will just say it how it is. And that was causing some problems. <laughs> and I think it was painful to come to terms with that, but it helped me smooth out some of those rough edges as a leader. But unless we invite feedback from our people that we lead, we don't know what, what it's like to be on the other side of us. So I want you to uncover your blind spots. That's the best leadership advice I've ever received. And so I want to extend that amazing advice from Rowan onto your listeners. I have to say, as someone that's listening in, you'll get the most value from examples and experiences. And so I also want to jump in and share. I realized my blind spot was when, so I don't like a lot of structure in how I, I like being able to take initiative and do my own thing and So that was the kind of leadership style I was employing of like, this is a task, do it in whatever way, whatever road you want, like don't let me stop you from trialing it. But I realized some of the people that I was working with really hated that and they wanted structure and they wanted to be told exactly like step one to 10 to get to the outcome that we were all aiming for. And that was like a huge oversight for me. I could have never have known that anyone wanted rules. (laughs) I was like, I don't like them. Why would you? And and you just, you wouldn't know until they tell you. Yeah, people really want clarity. I think that's the big thing on teams. And because we live in a world that's so ambiguous and so gray, we need to figure out how do I give people clear goals and expectations? And that's, that's been one of the big things for me of like, we need to clarify what we expect in terms of behavior and in terms of outcomes. And once we get that done, we make our lives heaps easier. We actually reduce all the stress that comes with having a team. 110%. That leads me to the final question. What is the worst business advice you've been told as a leader or to lead? The worst advice? I think it would be where someone has said to me, 
this person's not a natural leader. I think that idea where people rule other people out by just saying they're not a natural leader. And I think that concept of you're either a natural leader or you're not, you either have a leadership skill or you don't, is just rubbish. I think it's crap. Like, And we need to shift that because for so many people, they look at that concept and they go, well, I don't have what it takes. And I'm, I think some of the best leaders I've ever come across are the ones who never would have seen themselves as a natural leader. They're the people with the humility to go, you know what, I know what I don't know and I'm going to acknowledge that. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have it all together, but I'm going to be open and honest with my team about that and I'm going to trust my team and empower my team. I think the worst leaders are the ones with big egos who think that they know it all and they're the people that with some of those narcissistic traits that don't get the best out of their team. Like they might have all the charisma in the world. They might be the best communicator in the world, but they're a total jerk to work with. So the idea of natural leaders really irritates me and it's one of the, my big bugbears. So I think that would be the worst advice. And if you've taken that on in your career and you felt like, I don't think I have what it takes to lead, I want to encourage you that leadership is a skill just like anything else and you can learn it. That kind of leads into the segue of someone's listening to this and going, look, I want to start a business soon or I've started my business, which means at some point I will have to lead. And Shell has let me know that it isn't something I have to be born with. I can learn it. So if someone is interested, Shell, where can they find you? Where can they find the book? And where can they just get the most amount of information possible? Because this is actually life-changing stuff. Oh, yes. Thank you, Sam. So they can find me at, on Instagram, Bold Side Consulting, and on LinkedIn, Shelly Johnson. Just look me up. And the book we've written, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money, has a lot in there around that idea of moving from that side hustle to building your income. We talk a lot about the idea of, of starting a business. So jump on, get the book. Glenn, who did the pay chapter, which is amazing. It's like one of the best chapters in the book. There's so much gold in there about that. So you can check it out. It is a fantastic book. I have read it myself. I'm actually in the book on the section of quitting your job and starting your own business. And I just find that there's not a lot of business books or career books that come out there that really cover everything. Because not only did I take away how to lead and be great in business and, you know, step into that zone, I also got to understand tips that I could then use and sort of employ on my team and kind of, again, remind myself what it's like to be on the other end. And like you said, remind yourself what it's like to you know, work alongside you. I think it's such a good refresher and I am personally quite a fan of the book. So if you're listening and you have not read it, like run, don't walk. It is available online. It is available in retailers. It is a fantastic book. And Shell, thank you so much for jumping on and sharing so many great pearls of wisdom. I'm personally taking away like 50 things. Oh, thank you, Sam. I could talk to you all day. We're going to have to do something like this again. Totally. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalised investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence.